Good evening, everyone. <laughs> I see some old friends up the back here. Uh, this is what should have happened last night, <laughs> but didn't. So just in case I brought it in with me, it's a security blanket. <laughs> Sorry? Yes, something like that. Yeah. Uh, we've come to the uh, last night of the um, Insight Meditation Retreat, and so it seems to be an appropriate time uh, going on the some of the questions that were coming up today in the uh, interviews uh, to uh, discuss um, how to uh, bring this practice successfully into one's everyday life situation. Isn't that the case? It's a good question, isn't it? How to do that? There's a couple of uh, different theories on this particular topic. And one I read uh, once, which I rather liked, uh, was from a Thai monk. And he said, don't bother. (laughs) (laughs) He did, really. He was quite serious. He said, our daily life is not a place where you can uh, cultivate enough uh, effort and concentration and uh, effort and mindfulness and concentration to dive deep and experience the the, uh, freedom from suffering. He said uh, that uh, uh, the mind is not refined enough uh, to be able to um, build up enough momentum for the flashing forth of insight. Uh, which uh, transforms the consciousness of the person. He said, uh, just do retreats. And that was his uh, outlook on it all. And um, at the time I uh, read this, uh, I'd been doing a lot of retreats and I quite agreed with him. But over the uh, time, my view has changed. Uh, quite a lot, and not necessarily, not necessarily uh, because the uh, situation in the world of uh, meditation these days has changed, and there's a, you know, a quite a, a large or huge emphasis on mindfulness in daily life, isn't there? It's in some ways taken over uh, from people going to retreats. And uh, I noticed over a period of a number of years now uh, that less people are going to retreats and more people are going to classes. You know, going to four-week classes or eight-week classes um, and learning meditation in that way. And um, everyone I mentioned earlier knows about mindfulness. You know, my mother, uh, your mother probably, if they're still here in this world, you know, would probably know about mindfulness. It's an extremely popular uh, term. They may not know the word vipassana, but they do know about mindfulness. You know, so it's become quite commonplace. And that's a good thing because, of course, many people are learning to watch the mind. To what depth is what this Thai monk was referring to? Is it enough to... uh, give you uh, the um, wisdom, to allow the wisdom factor to arise in the mind? That's a very good question. And it is in my view, uh, which is uh, only a very tiny view. Um, I make no bones about that. But from my own limited experience, Uh, I found that it is possible for the insights to develop and come about uh, in the daily life uh, situation. If you understand about the two forms or the the form of meditation or the forms of meditation um, and the differences, if there is any. Now, 
So the question may arise to you, and I'm sure it's probably come up, is uh, how is it possible? Um, is it possible to continue with the practice at the level that we've uh, maintained here? You know, at the moment you probably uh, don't feel the level of uh, samadhi, the, uh, the level of concentration that's arisen in your practice. Uh, but when you go outside and uh, into the daily life situations, you will feel it. There will be a m- much more sensitive and perceptive uh, way of looking at things when you go into the world again. So that uh, concentration coming about through a refined situation that we find ourselves in. Uh, when we're in the meditation hall, we don't have, or in the meditation centre, we have very little distractions. The only distractions really are our own minds distracting us. Um, everything is laid on for us. We have uh, delicious food. We have um, you know, a beautiful meditation hall. We have uh, somewhat comfortable um, um, accommodation. So nothing really to worry about except uh, worry itself, which can arise anywhere. Uh, also in the meditation center, but essentially everything's not so bad here, is it? No, it's pretty good. So we're allowed the time, and uh, the uh, we have the opportunity and the time then to uh, develop our practice to a fuller extent than we would in everyday life situations. Now, if you have an attitude. Uh, that it's only in the meditation center that you're able to live happily uh, and um, attain to the higher levels of peace and understanding, then this view is not quite correct. The goal, as I mentioned right on the first night of uh, meditation practice, is to cultivate our uh, two factors, awareness and wisdom awareness and wisdom. And as far as I can see, uh, we can also develop these two factors, awareness and wisdom, in our everyday life if we have the right attitude towards it. If we don't, it won't work. If we have the right attitude, um, it's possible uh, to be able to uh, do this. This practice Perhaps not to the level of in the meditation centers, but certainly we have in our everyday life many opportunities to develop mindfulness, to cultivate mindfulness. A lot of opportunities. We are faced with all the entanglements, all the uh, um, stresses of life. And those are for the meditator, grist for the mill. They're there for us not to escape from, but to face. You remember one of the characteristics of mindfulness is to be able to face, to, to come face to face with what's happening. And our everyday life situation gives us, in fact, far more opportunities to practice mindfulness and to let go of clinging and craving than in the meditation centre. You know, we're first uh, faced, everyone has their own story to tell, and I'm sure if I opened that up to the stories, we would have, you know, we'd be here until next week talking about it. (laughs) But essentially, they're all the same stories. We have to deal with family, we have to deal with our work, we have to deal with our relationships, we have to deal with all the, uh, with all the chasing after pleasures uh, of life. You know, which takes up a lot of time. You know, um, and we're we're covered up really a lot of the time by all the entanglements that uh, beset us. But if you have an attitude that this is where this is the field that I want to play in, right? This is the field that I want to play in in the everyday life. You know, can I? Uh, commit to mindfulness and can I attain to uh, at least equanimity of mind in this field? This is a good question and only you can answer it. 
Yeah, it's up to you, really, how you uh, manage this one. Um, for me, uh, when I came back to Australia after five years, five and a half years of being away from Australia when I was a young boy, um, I had uh, just this road from being a monk in Thailand and uh, everyday life was something that wasn't really part of a monk's life. You know, you were in that environment, it's even more refined than this one where you're very protected from the world. You know, even though you would go out and you would meet people and etc, etc, but essentially you were very secure. You know, once you're part of the um, sangha, of the um, monks, uh, well, and, and nuns as well, of course, but of course I was in a monastery with nuns, so I'll use, um, uh, with uh, monks, just as well, I wasn't nuns. <laughs> I'd have been in big trouble. <laughs> no, no, I was a good boy. <laughs> uh, but I do remember, uh, and it's, it's actually a, a, a wonderful experience. I must say that I was extremely happy in that situation. Nothing to worry about, no responsibilities. Your food was there morning and night. Everyone uh, bowed down to you. <laughs> you know, it was amazing, you know. This 23-year-old Australian boy, you know, surfy boy, and all these people would come along and bow down to you. Even in the streets of India, they would drop down and bow. Go, get up, get up. <laughs> it was so embarrassing. I couldn't believe it. It took me a while to get used to that. But um, so you had everything. You know, what what's there to worry about? You know, it was great. I liked it. <laughs> And then I came back to Australia and from you know, travelling uh, around the world and living in India for a long time. And um, uh, w when they disrobe you, it's, uh, it's a very simple... <laughs> uh, I'll explain that, I don't mean to be facetious here. But it's a quite a... I'm just thinking about it now, it's such a long time ago, but I still remember it. That, that moment quite quite um, vividly. Um, when you ordain, it's a very elaborate ceremony, right? And everyone comes. It's like a big celebration. You know, it's great. You know, if you feel like a, like my mother's hundredth birthday. You know, you're a celebrity for the day. Right? And so everyone comes. But when you disrobe, it's completely different. There's only the abbot and you. And it's a very isolating feeling, in fact. And what he does, it only takes a few moments, a few minutes. And he gives you the uh, five precepts, gives you a little uh, dharma talk about good behavior, etc., etc., keep up the practice. And then he grabs your left shoulder, and pulls the robe down, like this. And it's a remarkable experience. You know, it's hard for me even to describe, but it's like you've lost something forever. It's incredible. And then you have to walk out in the street. You know, some friends have bought from India for me some you know, pajama pants. You know, those India pajama pants, right? And uh, a T-shirt, and gave me some money because I didn't have anything. And um, I had my passport and all that sort of thing, but I didn't have any money, so they gave me money. And off I went coming back to Australia. I walked out of the monastery, uh, a very lonely figure. I would think, at that time, I think I was feeling that. And suddenly you were bombarded by the world. When you're a monk, women, they run a mile. You know, if you're walking down the street as a monk, they will like move feet away from you so they won't touch you. All of a sudden, people were touching you. And it was really an amazing feeling, you know, suddenly you're trying to avoid, trying to avoid, you know, very, trying to get your way through all this crowd, uh, but you were one of them. You understand? And I couldn't quite get for a, a number of days that I was one of them. So everywhere I went, they must have thought, who's this crazy person? You know, I'd be avoiding everybody. And I came back to Australia. 
And now, oh, and of course, when you're a time monk, they shave your eyebrows. Not only your head, but they shave your eyebrows as well. And so you look particularly weird when you come through the customs. <laughs> you know, and your sort of mother's there to meet you after five and a half years, you know. And she's saying, George, George, look at this, look at this. <laughs> and I'm trying, I'm trying to sort of maintain my equanimity and, you know, be yes. <laughs> Not hugger, you know, <laughs> this sort of thing. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> oh, boy. And then I didn't go out of the house except to go to work for six months. I honestly didn't go out of the house. You know, I come home from work, and uh, uh, this is getting far away from <laughs> even further away. But it's, it is coming to a point that I could go on. <laughs> it was such a remarkable experience. I ended up walking, um, working. Uh, Twenty miles away was a um, steelworks. BHP, you may have heard of them. They're the biggest in the world. And um, I needed a job because I was wanting to rush back to India. I didn't want to know anything about Australia. It was a barren country. And at that point it was. That's for sure. Uh, so I used to go to work and I'd work next to this temper mill. A temper mill tempers the steel, doing three shifts. And it was so amazingly noisy. And I said, you know, coming from the quiet life of a monk, no eyebrows, coming in with all these, you know, really nice people, but rough, you know, and suddenly you're surrounded not by the culture of the monks, but by the steel workers. <laughs> and so I would um, deal with that, and they thought I was bizarre. <laughs> they, would, they would come along in the evening you know, for the first month, because I'd hardly talked to anybody, and they'd start putting nudie photos up in front of me. <laughs> this is true. This is absolutely true. And I would just go, sing, sing. <laughs> <laughs> like that. And they couldn't work out, who is this guy? You know? And I just kept smiling. <laughs> And then suddenly they started changing and they started to ask me, you know, where have you been? And I said, well, I became a monk. And they said, what's that? And so I, I explained that to them. And then they said, you know, the next week, a next shift came in. They said, they'd been talking about it, obviously. They said, can you teach us meditation? I said, sure. You know, I'll try my best. And, uh, and so in the downtime, on the evening shift, we sat round in a circle and I taught them Vipassana. <coughs> so it was a really nice story and I left um, that job and went back to India uh, with a very nice feeling and they gave me a little gift and all the rest of it. So it all worked out. If you have a commitment to what you're doing and your attitude is correct and you can live in any situation, it did take me a while to go out in the evenings as I said. I think the first thing I went out to for about six months was Midnight Express. Do you remember that movie? Heavy movie. But I wanted to see it because it was set in you know, uh, Turkey or something. I wanted to see it. So I went to see this really heavy movie. And I guess that was... I didn't even surf. Sorry, Zach. I didn't even surf at that time. You know. I just couldn't, uh, it was difficult for me to sort of deal with the world, except for these guys who were interested in what I'd been doing. So that was my life for the first six months. And then I realized, oh, this is uh, not what Vipassana is about. This is not what meditation is about. Uh, Vipassana is really about um, seeing how the state of the mind in the daily life situation, and I need to utilize this to... Um, um, continue with the practice. And so I started going out and I started being in the world and started doing what normal things that people were doing. Um, um, and, and it started to bring a lot of benefits for me. 
because uh, what I lost was uh, the feeling of ill will towards the world, that this is where I, I didn't, uh, didn't want to be. And so I'd have ill will, I'd look at people and I'd have judgments come into my mind about them, you know, value judgments about what they were doing, what they were wearing, what they were saying, you know, and so I was turning into a fundamentalist, really. And it changed me quite a lot when I realised that my attitude was just not working and not a very Buddhist attitude, which uh, teaches tolerance and kindness and compassion, etc. Now, when I, I after um, before I disrobed, I went down to a meditation centre in southern Thailand, and the monk there was a Burmese monk, teacher of Vipassana. And he said to me, well, you're going to disrobe now and you're going to go back to Australia and uh, what are you going to tell people when they ask you? And I said, oh, no one's going to ask me about anything, you know. And he said, yes, yes, I'm sure that they will. You know, they'll see no eyebrows, no hair, they're bound to ask you, you know. And he said, oh, well, I'll tell them about the uh, Four Noble Truths, the Noble Eightfold Path. He said, no, 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 you don't have to do that. You know, don't do that. That'll scare them off. <laughs> I said, well, what do I tell them? And he said, well, just tell them that you've been learning a method uh, that is going to reduce anger in the mind, going to reduce uh, stress in the mind, going to re reduce clinging in the mind, uh, in, in, in fact, going to reduce misery in the mind, going to give you an opportunity to come out of unhappiness in the mind. And that's all you need to say for now. You remember this is the 70s, not my early 70s, not much was happening in the early 70s in regard to this um, spiritual uh, growth. So that's the way I approached it and uh, on the advice of this uh, gorgeous monk and um, yeah and that helped me through. So it was a change in attitude and also the attitude of not seeing a difference between retreat practice and everyday life practice. And I think that's one of the most important things, is not seeing a difference. That the everyday life situation, which we spend 99% of our time in, is really the field where we should be playing and growing and developing and cultivating our wisdom and uh, uh, compassion because that's where we spend our most time. So what's the use of meditation? If you come to the meditation center for seven days or a month or something and you come back and instantly you walk down the path of the meditation center and you've lost your mindfulness. Right? And suddenly conditions arise that encourage unwholesome speech, unwholesome thoughts, unwholesome actions to come up. There's no use in that. You haven't learned anything. That's what I thought anyway. And I still think that's correct. If you're not able to bring it into an everyday life situation where there's at least uh, some degree of mindfulness, forget it. You know, it's not working. Try harder. You know. But this comes about by having right attitude, by having a skillful attitude and not making a difference. Every time you feel stressed out, you don't need to go running back to the meditation center because the same thing will happen again and again and again. I'm not saying one shouldn't go to the meditation center. Of course you should. But the attitude for that also should be different. It's not to escape from Dukkha, not to escape from the First Noble Truth, but it's to enhance and encourage and bring about a greater awareness and a greater wisdom, a more refined. So then when you come back into the everyday life again, you'll be more skilled. You'll have a better perspective on things you'll be able to do it more easily. You know, mindfulness or meditation practice should be your greatest friend and ally. If it's not, then we have to keep working on it. Out of all the relationships we have, 
you know, wife, children, jobs, etc., etc. Mindfulness should be your greatest friend. It's because it's that that will give you the peace of mind, the equanimity of mind, and the lightness of mind uh, to be in the world easily. And as you're able to do that, then you can help in the world and be an encouragement for other people. As I was to these uh, rough guys in Chepper Mill, uh, 20 miles from my home. So that's what I've uh, discovered. Now, another thing I discovered also, uh, which may uh, help you, and uh, we're going to turn our attention soon to the uh, strategies that we can we can undertake to help us in our everyday life. But I mentioned a little earlier, is it possible, I, I love these questions, is it possible in everyday life to, achieve, to gain insight, this flashing forth of insight into uh, the, I'm being a little bit Buddhist tonight, but I guess the whole retreat's been a little bit like that. Uh, the flashing forth of insight which can transform the, the consciousness, can uh, remove to some degree the uh, chilesis in the mind. Once again, it's the degree of attitude. And once again, it's the degree of commitment. And once again, it's the degree of maintenance. As I mentioned the other night, we now understand that mindfulness is not a factor that arises in every moment of consciousness. So it needs to be uh, nurtured, doesn't it? If it's going to grow strong and become our greatest friend and ally. I want to tell you a story uh, which I've told before. Some of you may have heard this story. There was a, oh there is, I think she's uh, still alive. At one time there was a, um, I was teaching, uh, I was the um, retreat coordinator for our meditation centre that we'd started in the Blue Mountains um, west of Sydney. It was only a small centre, it could take about 20 people. But it was lovely and it was comfortable and um, it did have heating, not very good heating because it's so cold up there. And I kept darnering heating and they thought I was being very generous, but it was just to keep me warm. <laughs> so I don't know if my motivation was so good actually, but I said, oh, well, if I'm, if I'm hot, then everyone else is going to be hot and happy, you know. So <laughs> and I knew Steve Smith would come and so he'd want hot, so <laughs> he's from Hawaii. <laughs> Anyway, so uh, my job was to arrange for um, our teachers to come. We had a very full uh, schedule. The uh, centre had been uh, modelled after IMS in many ways. And I saw an article once by about there was some conference that was held in Barry, the IMS centre, and there was a Burmese teacher there, a woman, and I really liked what when it came out in one of the IMS newsletters, I really liked what she had to say. And so uh, I wrote to her and invited her to come to Australia to teach a retreat. Her name was Dr. Tintin. And um, she agreed to come, which I was very surprised. So we raised enough funds and I advertised the retreat and here she comes. Uh, she came out. and. Uh, the Blue Mountains, as I said, is about two hours um, uh, west of Sydney. And that particular day was a really uh, difficult day. The day I had to pick her up, to take her up to the centre. Friday afternoon, very late in the afternoon, 5.30, 6 o'clock, and so the traffic was really bad. My water pump blew on the car. So fortunately I had some friends that could fix it and I said, you've got to fix this for me, I've got to pick up this woman, you know, and take her up to the mountains. I don't know who she is, you know, I've heard she sounds alright, but you know, can you do this for me? And they did. Anyway, we got there in the pouring rain 
and it's a very dangerous drive but you know, I'm trying to drive really carefully so she doesn't get too scared and she didn't say anything really the whole time <laughs> so I'm, I'm looking over and here's a little grey haired person sitting next to me and I go who is she this woman and I got up there uh, about an hour late and everyone was sitting in the hall uh, the hall at Medlow Bar, this place, is about as big as this one, uh, similar to this one. And they're all sitting, as you're sitting, in a, uh, in a very, quite a formal way. And she walks in, and I said, good evening, everyone. You know, this is Dr. Tintin. She's come from America, and she's going to be teaching you Vipassana meditation. She said, she looks around, and she says, oh, I don't teach sitting meditation. <laughs> I'm going, oh. Oh, she doesn't teach sitting. What do you teach? <laughs> she said, up, up. She said, up, up. Everyone get up. You know, form a circle. <laughs> I said, all right. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm coming from a very traditional Buddha, you know, Burmese Vipassana background, and she's telling everyone she doesn't teach sitting meditation. In the writing, it didn't say anything about this. <laughs> I thought she was just teaching Vipassana. She said, no, I teach uh, mindfulness in daily life. Mindfulness in daily life. And this, and I, by that time I'm going, mindfulness in daily life. I have got to go home. <laughs> and she started teaching this mindfulness in daily life. And she had certain strategies, which if we have time, I'll talk about a little later because they will be really helpful. And it turned out to be, uh, the whole retreat was a five-day retreat and it turned out to be very successful and people enjoyed her teaching very much. She's a very good lecturer <coughs> and uh, speaker and um, practical in her attitudes. And people did learn how to bring mindfulness in, into, into a daily life from especially uh, a retreat situation. For me though, I'd had enough by that time. It was 10 o'clock at night and I had to drive home to my house which was uh, two hours away and um, uh, because I'd been involved in organising all this, picking her up, it was, I was feeling quite uh, stressed at that moment, at that, that time and I got home and I hadn't done the washing up for three days, you know, people had been there, it hadn't been done since I left, you know, three days ago and I was all sitting on the sink, you know, nothing had been done, the house was a complete tip. Not that it's much better now, but I try my best. You know. <laughs> but that time it was particularly. And I, I said, I've got to clean up because I had to go back up the next day, right? So I'm starting to wash up and I could feel so strongly in the mind the resentment. The resentment was just amazing. It was just, it started coming up as a little thought in my mind. And I'm thinking, I'm not doing this ever again. You know, those yogis, what are they going to get out of this? She doesn't even sit. Who is she anyway? She's a little grey-haired lady. You know, she came in the first time in a wheelchair. And I'm going, what's going on here? You know, I'm sitting here and I'm washing up and I'm putting things on the sink, you know, uh, f from the sink to the sideboard, right? And as I'm doing that, all of a sudden, just in that moment, the resentment got so strong just really powerful. I was riveted, you know, and my hands were on the bench. And then I felt this resentment just grow stronger and stronger and stronger. And then like a balloon bursting, there were like this stream of bubbles. And the resentment just went like that. And the mind became completely tranquil. It was absolutely amazing. It was one of the first times I'd ever experienced that experience. And to see the dissolving uh, of those strong emotions was something that I had not experienced before. And this came about in a daily life situation. So that's why I have the confidence to say through experience that it is possible. You know. If you look closely enough, you know, I think I was helped also by having done a lot of practice before. And so I could, you know, but just something happened. And it just showed me that in everyday life that you could 
uh, reach or have those experiences uh, which pointed to the you know the ending of suffering because for that moment you know and for a number of days afterwards uh, suffering ended in the mind nothing could throw you I went up happily the next day yeah she's teaching mindfulness in daily life you know I better look at this and have a look and see if there's any benefit for it and you know I was really happy with it all so that's what I learned from her you know, that if you look at your mind uh, with a commitment, uh, then you can certainly see the true nature of things. How she taught, after that we became very good friends for a period of time. And we taught many retreats, uh, which uh, we call on the cushion, off the cushion. And they're a combination of sitting and daily life activities retreats. It's like a simulated um, um, daily life. There would be sitting periods and then uh, the yogis would be given certain exercises to do, like going doing, you know, sort of divide the group up into, say it's 20 people, you know, there'd be four groups and one group would have to go and do the shopping, the other group would have to uh, do the cooking. And uh, you didn't get to choose, and then gardening or something like this. And you didn't get to choose uh, what job you got. You just had to pick your name out of a basket and then go off and do it and watch the mind as it was doing it. And then come back and uh, cook if you had never cooked before. Uh, there were recipes given that there wasn't a chef or something like this. So some of the food came out a little bit dodgy, but still. <laughs> but the windows got cleaned. <laughs> In the meditation centre, I'm going, oh, this is good, the windows are getting cleaned. Right? Mindfully cleaning, cleaning, you know, this kind of thing. And then in the afternoon, there'd be more sitting and then combined with another exercise and then she'd have a, as we've been doing here, a sort of group interview to find out uh, the level of your mi uh, your mindfulness and how much you could um, see what was happening. For example, the people that had been to the checkout, uh, been to the supermarket, uh, they would uh, come back and report on their reactions of uh, trying to decide which food to buy. If there were people in the line and they were late to get back, and if then their mind was reacting to that, so. It, I think it worked really quite well, uh, quite uh, special really. Um, she had a strategy uh, in her courses of each day it was a different object of meditation to watch. And the first day it was watching the six sense doors. So you, every time you saw something, um, um, seeing, hearing something, I can't remember what they are, a little bit tired. Seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling, touching, you had to be aware as much as possible. So she was using the sixth sense door meditation, which comes into the four foundations of mindfulness, the last one, as the primary object. So every time you heard something, you had to notice it and your reaction. Every time you saw something, you had to notice it and react it and, and your reaction to it. So that was the first day. The second day was uh, noticing your likes and dislikes. Because you know, we have throughout the day, nearly all day, likes and dislikes about something that we've experienced through the impacts on the sense doors. So you start to watch your likes and dislikes. And that was really interesting as well when people reported what they saw there. And then the next one, the next day she'd watch you'd watch um, judgments, value judgments. You know, how much of the day do we just look around and say, don't like the colour of that shirt, you know, or well, that person's a bit overweight, maybe you should go to the gym, you know, uh, or something like that, or Australians can't stand them. Yeah. <laughs> what a country. New Zealanders are much better. You know, this sort of thing. Well, their hair, they need a haircut. I know, don't like that haircut they got the other day. And you're saying this to yourself, right? Do we do that? A little bit. Mm. 
for value judgment, she'd start watching those. And then the last day of the retreat, she'd have people observe clinging and craving. And because the mind was now getting more refined, and you can start to see these things arising more clearly. And for me, that was the most interesting too. too really, well, it was all interesting. But once you started to see the nature of clinging and craving and how it arises in the mind uh, through the impacts of the external objects on the sense doors, um, it's really, really wonderful. Because, and if you're mindful of it, it gives you the space. You can start seeing that before it continues on the cycle you know, and reaches its goal of getting something or pushing something away, something like that. And there's a whole law of conditioning which determines this, or dependent origination, but we won't go into that. We're going to have to come back to the next retreat to get that. So it was quite fine. And that's one strategy that you could take up. Uh, these four uh, areas are something that can be utilised very well in daily life. Sometimes she would suggest, in combination with the city, in combination with the city, sometimes she would, she would suggest that this was only a four-day retreat with one day given over to each of the categories. But she would say, take a week or take a month and just observe each time there's an uh, impression coming or hitting or contacting a sense door. Right? Each time you hear something, you know, watch your reaction to it. You make that part of your program for the day. <coughs> can you understand? Can you see this? It's really quite interesting. Or you can make seeing. You know, every time you see a sight, how does your mind react to that sight? How does your mind react to it? Do you want it? Do you want to push it away? You know, this is really interesting stuff. Because, and then you begin to see, oh, because of that, the effect is conflict in the mind. You can start to see it. It's really interesting. And so you can develop an attitude of equanimity towards what's happening to you in the present moment. I like it very much indeed. Because it's really getting to the crux and the core of the Buddha's teachings of seeing how suffering arises in the mind. Doesn't it? So she would suggest this and um, that kind of strategy. Or, or she'd say, well take likes and dislikes and do a week on likes and try and notice as many likes as you can. And there's a, thousands of them each day. It doesn't mean you have to not, you know, race down to Starbucks and buy a grande flat white. Don't buy the flat whites, they're $4.45. <laughs> I, got, I got conned the other day. Flat whites and Australian coffee, which Starbucks has taken over type of the way they make it and she said that's four dollars forty five and I said what <laughs> isn't that a bit expensive <laughs> you know, and I could see my little mind just reacting you know with, you know I was a little actually I was a little bit cool about it actually I must say <laughs> she just smiled at me and she said sorry that's how much it is <laughs> I said, all right <laughs> how much more do you want <laughs> something like that you know, you can start to watch likes and dislikes and it doesn't mean that one has to give up everything. People say, well, if I watch my likes and dislikes, how am I actually going to buy anything? <laughs> well, you, you, you're actually develop. what you're doing is developing di wise discrimination. Wise discrimination. So here you're bringing in a strategy which is going to be useful in the life of the meditator to simplify I decided that instead of seven surfboards, I should only have three. So I sold off some. But then I couldn't stand it any longer and I went and bought a couple more. <laughs> Something like that.
the likes and then you can start watching dislikes. Mm. You know, and the dislikes are often really difficult to deal with. You know, so it's a good strategy as well. Uh, value judgments, you know, when you come across someone, your friends or food or clothing or whatever it is in life, countries or people or whatever, you can start to watch how much of the time we spend in value judgments, getting caught up because of ignorance in our mind, because of I, me, mine, because of wrong view, michaditi, how we get caught up in these things. And then you may spend some time on cravings and watching how the cravings arise and the effect that that will have on you and other people. Something like that. So that's one strategy for mindfulness in daily life training and I rather like that and I quite like uh, telling people about it because I think it's quite effective. It's essentially using the three foundations of mindfulness of Vedana, feelings, and Chitta, watching the mind, consciousness and mind objects, and the fourth foundation of mindfulness, Dharma Nupasana, uh, watching the six sense doors. So within everyday life practice, the approach that we can take is to keep in mind the four, the, uh, four foundations of mindfulness. You know, in her strategy, she used the first, uh, the um, third, uh, the uh, second, third, and fourth more. In the Mahasi practice, we use the first and the second more you know, to dive deeply into the practice, being aware of the body and the activities of the body. So another strategy would be train yourself uh, to try to be aware of what you're doing when you're moving around the world. You know, we sleep for eight hours, if we're lucky. As you get older, you sleep less, I might tell you. But essentially, we're awake for a lot of the time. And from the moment we get up until the moment we go to sleep, we're often moving in some fashion or other. So the first foundation of mindfulness as another strategy that you can utilise is really useful. Tune into the postures of the body. Instead of the mind being in Bali or Waikiki, have it be in the present. You, know, What are you doing now? I'm sitting. Am I aware of the sitting posture and the sensations engendered by that? You can do this even if you're talking with someone. You're in the restaurant having a conversation, but there can be just a little bit of you. As I'm sitting here talking to you, I'm aware of my hands and the sensation of the hands touching the cushion. I'm aware of the sensation of my back. When I'm at home on the computer, I try to be aware of certain aspects of my posture. You know, it might be the sensation I feel of the arm on the on the desk, something like that. When you go to bed at night, or at any time uh, before you go to sleep, just tune into the body lying there. You know, what am I doing now? I'm lying. What do I feel when I'm lying? I feel this and that. Sometimes you can just be aware of the head on the cushion for a few moments. Another strategy. Walking down the street is a good one for me. I walk a lot and I think everyone's walking a lot these days. We're all worried about dropping dead from a heart attack or something. As my cardiologist told me, she said, walk. And I said, well, if I walk, my knees hurt. She said, it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> Better to have sore knees than, you know, uh, cardio cardiovascular disease from eating all that rice in Asia. <laughs> so I walk in the morning. And um, that's the opportunity that I take uh, to practice walking meditation. It's another strategy. Um, do you walk slowly? Well, of course not. You know, you look a bit weird, all these people walking <laughs> past you with their dogs. You know, I mean, even the dog goes faster than you, you know, something like that. But there's things that you can use in walking practice, and I tell my students in Australia, um, I'll have to stop here, I think, in a minute. 
But I uh, told you the story about uh, this famous monk coming to Budgaya and uh, we had to uh, follow him uh, from the Burmese temple down to the university in a line. And he did give us a technique um, to use when you're walking. You can either use uh, the techniques that we're using here of just walking, 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 or you know, right step, left step, right step, left step. But you can also use a counting, which is really nice as well. And the method is to count with each step, one, two, three, four, five, and then one, two, three, four, five, six, and then one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and then one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. But if you miss anywhere along there, you've got to come back to one, two, one, two, three, four, five. And it's quite amazing. For the first kilometre, this was a long way down there. I thought I should be drinking chai, not walking down, you know. But I got into it. And for the first little while, your mind was all over the place. And then suddenly it would tune in. And you just start to feel the uh, sensations <coughs> of the body or the wind on the body. It was really nice. Really a good method. So I'd like to suggest that, seeing everyone's very health conscious, you know. That's one way to do it. You might have to tell your companion to, I'm sorry, I don't want to talk at the moment. You know, because everyone talks a lot when they walk. Right? Together, don't they? That's another thing you can do. Um, you need to, I think, if you have that attitude uh, that you want to train yourself, you know, it's important. Attitude is so important. You know, if you have a commitment to wanting to um, wanting to dive more uh, deeply into understanding your own mind, uh, then these little strategies are very useful for you. But they need to be in the confines to be really useful as far as insight knowledge goes. They need to be in the confines of the four four foundations of mindfulness. So if you can take away from this retreat an understanding of the four foundations of mindfulness and what they are, this will help you very much in your everyday life. Um, and how to use them is another factor. You need to know how, not just what, but how, how to use them. The sensation level is as I described. First, you be aware of the posture, kaya. Second thing is, what's happening within the posture? Right? Vedana. Right? When I'm, my mind starts reacting in, say, in, in some way to some uh, stimuli, chitta. What mental state is in the mind? Am I grumpy? Am I happy? Am I sad? You can turn your attention to these things. Then that's useful, isn't it? You know, um, that kind of thing is what you, what we can do to help. Another way of approaching this as well, I would like to suggest, is that it's very important, and I'm sure those of you that have been to retreats before will will know they're always being told this. Um, it's important to meditate every day, and I keep at least every second day. But if you can, every day, and minimum of half an hour, that's really helpful. And I'm sure that many of you will start off with the commitment, oh yes, I'm going to go and do that, because it is hard to do it by yourself with or on your own, uh, with a family, etc., etc. But once again, it's a matter of commitment, and you'll find a way. Um, I was explaining today, uh, one of the Cindy was asking. She was having trouble, you know, wanting to be in the meditation centre and wanting to not be in the world. It's too sort of chaotic for her. And I say, well, my Burmese friends who are Buddhists and practitioners of meditation, they were. Uh, they, um, their strategy for doing this is 
making their life as if it was a temple outside in the world. And so they try and simplify their, their life a lot. You know, their home is often in a Burmese home, it's very chaotic, there's always a lot of people, but there's always a quiet room or a quiet place where they have set up something which is significant for them, like a, a Buddha Rupa, a Buddha statue or something like that. But you can do whatever you like, of course, but they've set up some part of their house where they can go to and they can be quiet. And um, I've noticed that what happens with these Burmese people is that uh, they don't seem to go to the movies so much or don't go to the theatre so much or don't do all the things that we like doing. Instead, they go to the temple and so they're surrounded by people that are trying to improve their minds and they're living uh, or they're trying to be with people that are on a spiritual path. They go to the monastery. We don't have to do all this. I'm just explaining how they do it. You can work out your own way. They go to offer food to the monks and nuns. And as I mentioned the other night, that story about my Burmese friend. Um, and so they're practicing generosity. So they're building up those qualities of mind. And then when they do get an opportunity, and they usually sit every day, it's amazing. You know, um, sometimes twice a day, often twice a day. You know, these are my meditating friends. When they get an opportunity once a year, they go and do a retreat, or once every two years. And I said, how do you feel with all that? And they said, oh, we live very happily, thank you. They don't say, I'm so stressed out. I've never heard them say that, ever. They say, oh no, we live very happily. Because they've got harmony in their life. So we can approach it in this way too. You know, we have to work out strategies that are going to create an environment in where we live, where we work, the people we hang out with, which are going to be harmonious for us to some degree. You know, everyone doesn't have to go and work in a steelworks. But even within that, if the attitude is right, harmony can reign. Now I know that's hard to do. In this current world that we live in, but you can try at least. And I put these, this proposition to you to give you um, some food for thought. You know, can I change my life enough you know, to bring an environment which is going to be conducive for the practice of mindfulness? And if it's not, can I still then be mindful? Right? Good question, huh? So sitting every day is something that is really uh, difficult to achieve and I'm extremely grateful that when I first started practice my little monk uh, encouraged me to do this and I did it. And I must say without uh, no hint of uh, boasting but it's very rare that I miss a day of sitting and maybe two or three, four or five days a year and even if I'm on a plane, I'll try and sit for a period of time. Mm. I was travelling one time with uh, one of the monks on, the, on a plane, plane trip. And it was a night flight. And you know, I was squirming around a little bit and trying to get to sleep. And then I noticed the monk was sitting quite quietly and I was thinking he was asleep. I said, Saido, did you get some good sleep? He said, oh no, I just meditated all night. <laughs> I felt yeah, quite foolish. <laughs> I just meditated all night. I said, God. <laughs> also, another attitudinal thing is not thinking that any situation can't work. Any situation can work. You know, we think, oh, I can't do that because this is not quite how it should be before I practice. Any situation is workable. It doesn't matter what it is. So have a, that kind of attitude as well, that you can apply mindfulness in any situation. That's important. 
it doesn't matter where you are. If you're in the most quiet of places or the most noisiest places, it doesn't matter. You can still be there. One of the greatest blessings is to free your mind from stories in the mind. We make up so many stories and ruminations and fantasies and oh, if only I was doing this or not doing that or, you know, thinking, oh, yes, if only I had a million dollars in one lotto and I was a, you know, kind of, what are they, having, what were they, uh, anchor man or something, you know, then I'd be really happy. And so the mind goes on and on and on. It's not the place to be. I mean, I keep thinking, oh, if only I was 20, I could be a pro server, you know. I have to stop that thought. <laughs> it's just not working. You're making it up. Right, it'll probably... Yeah. Yeah, I'm hoping it won't be. Maybe my, the sort of last moment of my life will be um, imagining I'm in a barrel at Pipeline and I'll be reborn as a dolphin <laughs> surfing Wyoming Bay or something. I better be careful of that. <laughs> that thought. Uh, so not getting caught up in your stories. You know, you can be mindful of that. You can say, oh no, that's not now. You know, something like that. Not now. Because you know, uh, all these fantasies and stories and ruminations can lead to all kinds of trouble and problems, can't they? You know, so check that out as well. Um, and I think one of the most important things in Dharma practice, I think there's a few things that are important. I think there's a lot of things that are important, actually. I think the cultivation of generosity is one of the most important things. Uh, not just in some material ways, but in uh, the way we can let go of selfishness and tightness in the mind. This is really helpful. And so to be able to watch those mental states when they arise is really important. The mind becomes so much more easy and light. And meditation becomes much easier when the mind is not caught up in this, this, these uh, states. So look for that, you know, when the mind starts to tighten around holding on, you know, to things. Look at that as well. Um, what else is there? There's a lot. I've mentioned this one. Oh, no. The other one, which I think is the, we'll just uh, finish with this one tonight. And these, some of these uh, steps I'm uh, mentioning, or strategies I'm mentioning, come from this absolutely beautiful woman uh, whose name was Deepama. And she was, if you want to see, want to have met or get to know, unfortunately she's dead, she died a long time ago, but she was a pers per personification of a Buddha in, in uh, my mind. She was a lay person, she wasn't a nun, she was an older woman that lived in Calcutta and we had the opportunity to meet her on many occasions and she embodied the Dhamma. She had all the traits of a person free from greed, hatred and delusion, to be quite honest. When you walked into her tiny little place in Calcutta, it was like being in a, um, being in a blissful place. You instantly felt calm and secure and safe and it was just beautiful. She had that uh, development in, with, uh, within her. And she said that for her, the spirit of blessing is really the thing that she tries to apply. And what she meant by this was the spirit of metta and that wherever she went, she would send metta to people. She'd walk around, if she was going shopping, in the streets of Calcutta, uh, or she was in a taxi or a bus, she would just in her mind look at someone, or you know the, the ticket collector or the shopkeeper, and she'd just say, may you be happy, may you be happy, peaceful. And that was her spirit of blessing. And I'll always remember when she said that, because it touched one so uh, strongly. You know, I have to remember to do it. 
was only 40 years ago. <laughs> no, it's very, very good. You might like to try that, especially when things are tough. You just walk, you just look at people and you say, may you be happy, may you be peaceful, may you be happy, may you be free from suffering. So metta itself, uh, this um, state of loving kindness, is something that is extremely important for, important for us um, in our everyday life situations. You know, how can we free the mind from the taints of the mind, from the tightness of the mind? We can free it through, free it through the cultivation of mindfulness and the spirit of blessing. And then the mind can live, we can live uh, with harmony in the world, harmony with ourselves and harmony with everybody. So the spirit of blessing is the last strategy that I would like to talk about, uh, which comes from Deepama, and it's probably the most significant of all of them. So try it out. Try it out and see if it works for you. So I hope some of these uh, strategies will be useful for you, um, and you'll be able to bring yourself into a situation uh, of the here and now, the present moment, uh, where you can make mindfulness your greatest friend and ally. The Buddha said, for uh, us to be totally at peace, nothing should be relied on. Everything is out of our control, really. Everything is changing. And we, but we can be secure within ourselves if we have mindfulness. Thank you. Okay, it does make a difference, doesn't it? I'm not like a happy talk now. <laughs>